Today, we need to tackle an incredibly important question. That question is, does the Bible teach a local flood or a global flood? This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekes. I am the executive director of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching and outreach organization that seeks to help Christian families articulate, defend, and share the truth of the Christian worldview. The center of the bullseye for us is Christian men. We want to help Christian men become equipped and confident so that you don't miss out on the ministry that God has given you and the unique calling that God has for your life in your household, in the spheres of influence that God has given you, like your workplace, your local area, and the people that God brings into your life. So that's why we're here. In order to stand for Jesus Christ in a confident way, you have to understand what God's written word, the Bible, says. All right, well, we are here with my friend Apologetai, and he and I have been on this show a few times to talk about the age of the earth, the flood, things like that. And one of the most... I think important and possibly controversial videos that Apologetai and I have had has been responding to pastor and theologian Gavin Ortland. Gavin Ortland has a channel called Truth Unites, where his goal is very admirable. His goal is to unite believers around the truth of the gospel and to give believers more confidence in their trust in the Bible. Now, our goal in having this conversation today is to do the very thing that Pastor Ortland says that he wants to do on his channel, which is to give believers more confidence in believing what the Bible says. And yet, that confidence, I believe, should not come at the expense of understanding what Scripture is actually teaching. So, what was the extent of the flood in Genesis? Was it local? Was it global? Why does this matter? And is this something that Gavin Ortland needs to change his mind about? I am thrilled to have my friend Apologetai on the show with me today again. Matt, it's great to see you. Why don't you start things off by just telling us why are we talking about Gavin Ortland again and why this topic of the extent of the flood? Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back on your show. So, you know, I just want to start out with saying that I don't think Gavin Ortland is a heretic. I don't think he's evil. In fact, I enjoy listening to him. I think he's very eloquent, easygoing, uh, easy to listen to, and definitely well-read. But I think the reason we have to come on and talk about this is comes down to an, the authority of Scripture issue, the issue of how we want to read God's Word and how we want it to affect our lives. And in many of the cases that uh, Dr. Ortland, or is he a doctor? Professor, Mr. Ortland? I think he is. I, I let's mean, call him doctor I, and err on the side sure of is. giving him what he deserves. You know, if yeah. you're, if you're not a doctor, Ortland, <laughs> Mr. Ortland, uh, I, I don't feel right calling him Gavin because I don't know him, but uh, right. maybe we'll call him Geo. Geo <laughs> made, made a great video that I think we ought to definitely discuss. And if we want, do we want to get into that right away, Joel? Well, I, my first question is this. He says that the thesis of his video, let me make sure I get this right. I've got it in my notes. 
But the thesis that he said he was trying to defend is that the biblical text can be responsibly read as a local flood. I hear that and I go, all right, that's not, that's, that doesn't sound like he's dying on any particular hill. It sounds instead like he's trying to open up a big tent for biblical interpretation to make sure that old earth creationists like Hugh Ross and young earth creationists like Jason Lyle can all be together under the same tent of orthodoxy and no one's trying to shove anybody else out of that tent. And my first question, Apologetai, is what's wrong with that approach? No, I I don't think his goal is incorrect. We want to be, we want to have, to unite in truth. So the question is, what is the truth? And that's where we have to discuss. Mm. And he has this particular definition of what he thinks the truth of God's word is, or the, the way he wants to almost smudge the truth a little bit to say, well, we can allow this, we can allow that. And in many ways we can allow it in Christendom. And I think I could worship with Gavin Ortland, and I think I could worship with those uh, old earthers, many of them who I think believe in error of what God's word is teaching, although I don't mm. think it's heretical. Okay, so we can worship with them. Uh, we can we can fellowship with them. We're not kicking them out of the kingdom, but we do want to know. Now, are you of the opinion, Apologetic Matt? Are you are you of the opinion that as Christians we ought to seek unity in the minimal amount of contested doctrines, meaning we get down to the bedrock of what Christianity teaches: the virgin birth, the incarnation the atoning death of Jesus Christ, his burial and resurrection, the Trinity. And we just unite around those things and we say, you know, the rest of it, we don't really need to agree on that. Or are you more of a theological maximalist where you say, whatever scripture teaches, we ought to hunt down every doctrine and and try to discern that and figure out as so we can believe as many true biblical doctrines as we possibly can. Which of those two camps do you fall into? I would say I try to hold a lot of that with an open hand and not necessarily put myself in a bucket. Uh, some okay. of the things I would like to say is that Christianity is the logical outworking of what the Bible teaches. So as Christians, we ought to try to understand what the Bible is teaching and be consistent with how we understand what the Bible teaches so that we can logically apply that in our lives. The mm. second thing I would want to say to that is no one is saved by what they know, the correct quantity of information they have. We are all saved by faith in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. So I need to talk to you about some of the, the false beliefs that you have, Joel, but that may be for another <laughs> podcast. No, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. That, I'm be sure we, don't, we don't agree on every single thing, and that's fine. We can worship together. Yeah. But when someone teaches things where we start smudging what I think that the Bible is clearly teaching, I think that's that's fair game for being called out. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, for me, I really do want to believe as many, as as much of what the Bible teaches, I want to ferret it all out and believe it all. And that doesn't mean that we, as you said earlier, that doesn't mean that we can't fellowship with or um, unite with those who believe differently on some of these secondary and tertiary doctrines. But as a teacher of the word, I want to know what scripture teaches. And I want to proclaim that because if God has taught something in his word, by his written word, 
He wants us to know it. And so, yes, there's going to be certain things that we can never fully understand. Getting our minds around the Trinity, I think, is a great example. But the fact that God is triune, incredibly important. The fact that God created the world in six days, I believe, incredibly important. Now, if it turns out God didn't create the world in six days, if it turns out the, the flood is not what we think it is, we ought to believe that. We we ought to to search that out and to figure out if we you know, where we stand on that. And I think we ought to unite around as much truth as we possibly can. Um, rather than just write certain doctrines off as, oh, we're never going to agree on that. I, I think we ought to do a little bit more work. You know, like, well, let's find out if we really don't agree. Let's look at the absolute best arguments on both sides and really try to get to the bottom of this. The other um, thing about that is when someone believes a certain issue in God's word, there are many times cascading implications from that. So someone yeah. who believes in an old earth has a cascading implication of death and suffering and thorns prior to the sin of mankind. And that's a, right. you know, that can be, that can become very quickly a gospel issue. And when we talk about uh, a global flood versus a local flood, most of the people who believe in old earthism also believe in just a local flood. Those the, the Venn diagram is almost completely overlapping for those who believe in a, a local flood and old earthism. So a, addressing this issue of a local flood, when the Bible clearly teaches a, a global flood, then we need to talk about how that those implications will affect well, what is the result of sin? Does, has, has death and suffering and disease and bloodshed and thorns existed in a very good creation prior to the sin of mankind? Or was that a result of the sin of mankind? Because those things are all tied together. And while we can, we can talk about those, those implications later, it's because of the, the stance that he has made. Well, it's a local, we can read it as a local flood. Well, I have reasons, biblical reasons, why you can't read it as a local flood. That's what we need to get into. All right, so Gavin begins his video. The first thing that he gets into, he talks about how local does not mean small. And a local flood can still touch all humans. What do you think about that claim? Well, it seemed to be uh, one of the smaller parts of his argument. Uh, and he was a little bit soft on whether or not the flood killed all of human drowned all of humanity other than those on the ark he's soft on that and like he, he, he and i think that's another gospel issue that has some secondary implications were did all of the people who are alive today come from noah and his family or were there other people who survived and you start getting some pretty uh problematic implications from that regarding uh the kinsman redeemer and uh, how how God created all nations from one man. One well, man wouldn't everybody Noah. still be descended from from Adam and Eve though, even if they weren't descended from Noah? Well, that's that's part of the problem with combining it with this old Earth belief. Many mm -hmm. old Earthers believe that there were people around that uh, Cain was able to marry into a different line of people that were not under Adam's line. And right. even though the Bible clearly says in Genesis 3.22, Eve would be the mother of all the living. Uh, and Adam was the first man in 1 Corinthians 15. They, these are problems that they have to kind of smudge the truth. And, well, maybe it could mean this. Maybe we'll, we'll redefine it to mean that. But what does it say? And they have to come in with a redefinition rather than holding true to what God's word actually says. 
Okay, so so it, it, like you said, it leads to cascading issues, yes. theologically speaking. Okay, uh, so let's walk through the rest of his video and, and take us through the arguments here. What does he say and what's a young earth response? Yeah, so one of the things he said right from the beginning, and he says it two or three other times, and I've heard it in other uh, people who claim in the local flood, is that when you read the text, it's obvious that it's a global flood. And then, then that's one of the things he opens with. And he says, well, let's let's start walking through it and dig a little deeper. But from a first reading, from a plain reading, everyone agrees it's a local flood. I mean, it's a global flood. We all agree. It, the, the text says a global flood. And then to make it sound like it could have been a, a local flood, they have to kind of do some caveats and some nuance and see what the the other ancient Near East methodologies would teach about this so that they can bring it back into scripture and redefine it. And that's, that's the biggest issue is the authority of God's word. Do we, do we hold to the authority and that whatever this says, we interpret everything else outside of scripture based on what it says? Or do we look at the outside of scripture and say, well, let's bring a little bit of that in. And in, mm-hmm. in, in many cases, that's what he's doing. And he does, he won't say it. And he, he says throughout the video, I have a high view of scripture. Therefore, it is the, it is the, uh, it is the authority. Yet, he says throughout, let's, let's dig a little deeper and look at the science. He says the science a couple of times. Um, one of the, one of the subtle attacks he makes right at the beginning, he says, is he says here, we in the 21st century are reading English translations. And he doesn't go into that very much, but it's a subtle attack on, well, these thousands of men who have gone through the process of translating the Hebrew into English. Can we really rely on what our English translations say? So I took the top 10 translations, uh, the ESV, the KJV, the NLT, the NIV, the CSB, the NASB, the LSB, the NET, RSV, ASV, all 10 of the top 10 version English versions of the Bible do not allow for a local flood. The waters prevailed exceedingly over the earth so that all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered, Hmm. prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains, the waters covered even the highest mountains on the earth. The waters surged even higher than all the earth and all the high mountains under heaven. So when Gavin Ortland comes in and said and makes it and he didn't attack, but it was very subtle. He threw it in there as like a, like a jab. If you're not watching It'll get past you that these English translations may not do justice to what the Hebrew says. And yet there's no English translation that says maybe some of the mountains were partially covered in the part of the land, which is what he's trying to say. We can read it faithfully as he he makes the case. And yet there's no room in the Hebrew for that. How do we know there's no room in the Hebrew? Um, Let me let me give you a hypothetical here. So let's say that we were talking about. Uh, a, a, a low-lying town, just going extremely local, situated next to a river that um, one spring, due to torrential rainfall and heavy snow runoff coming down from the mountains, all of the buildings in this town, or at least in the downtown area, are completely submerged. I'm talking up to the roofs, all right? Um, that we could envision that scenario with without saying we could say all the tops of the tallest buildings were covered in the whole land in the whole region i'm stretching here but go with me and and if that's what i meant and then someone came along later and said oh so what you're saying is every town on earth was covered the roofs of every town 
you know, if I were there to correct that person, I'd say, no, you know, you don't understand. I was talking about the particular um, region and, and you, know, you have to understand it's a low lying region. It's a low lying area. The downtown was built in a, in a gully. And, you know, if you understood the geography, you would know that the water could cover the tops of these buildings without extending, you know, more than a couple of miles beyond the, the floodplain there. Um, why couldn't that be going on in Genesis? So the tops of all the mountains in the Eretz, I think is the Hebrew word, why couldn't they be covered within within a particular boundary, a bounded area? But then that doesn't include other mountains like Mount Everest, the Rockies, the Himalayas. Why Why can't that be the case? So there's two things I would say to that. One of them is that if you read Genesis 6 through 8, halfway through 8, there are 31 superlatives, everything, all, only. And from those superlatives, there's no room for just this little town. If there were, we might see, because you said in this case, it was a low-lying valley. Well, we don't see any hint of a qualification, a qualifier that says it's just this part or just this, or maybe it's some of that or a little bit of this. The words mm -hmm. used to describe the flood are one of totality, not of a limited. We, we, if, if it were limited, there should have been some limiting words. Mm -hmm. I don't see that I anywhere see. in the text. Okay. It's, it's superlative and all... As Gavin Ortland said, we want to see what the Bible says. We don't want to inject our thoughts into this. So when I read the text, the text clearly says to me, and I think throughout church history, we see this as the orthodox view, even though there were outliers, as he points out, that everyone understands this is a global flood. And there may be, you know, half a dozen outliers that saw differently. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because he does read a few of those. The second mm -hmm. thing I would say to that is there's one named mountain range in the text. Do you remember what that is in, in uh, Genesis chapter eight? The mountains of Ararat. The mountains of Ararat. So at the very least, we would expect that the mountains of Ararat would be covered, right? Because it says right. all the high mountains are under the entire heavens. The tallest mountain of Ararat is almost 17,000 feet, and it has endured uh, uh, volcanic activity in the last, uh, in our lifetimes. I mean, in, in the last few hundred years, I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. what it is. So at one time, it was higher than 17,000 feet. So at the wow. minimum, we would expect that in this text that has been given to us, that the, the waters would have had to at least cover Mount Ararat, which is over 17,000 feet high. There's not a basin in the Middle East that can cover a 17,000 foot high mountain. So when Gavin says, well, we got, we can't, we can't, you know, um, what does he say? Multiply the miracles that weren't in the text. That's a miracle that he has to come up with that waters were bounded. 17,000 foot high floods were bounded inside this basin of just walls of water that hmm. the geography itself could not bound. And so that's a, that's a problem for his view of a local view. Those are the two things I would say. And there's probably more if we continue to dig down that road. What's the, what's the possible response to that? You're right, because the flood comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which means that the water would have been above the tops of the mountains of Ararat so that the flood could then be lowered on onto the mountains. And that necessitates that the water was higher. I mean, what what is the 
answer to that? Is it that the mountains of Ararat were just lower at that time, or that I mean, are we do do they have an answer? The only uh, answer that I've heard from the scoffers is that the mountain ranges have changed names. That the, what we call Ar the mountains of Ararat today were were not called the mountains of Ararat at that time. So, is there uh, evidence for that? I don't I don't know for sure. Uh, no. A historian, probably, you know, Gavin is probably a better historian, more well read than I have. But whether that's the case or not, what we what when we read God's word, we see that it it, it does call the mountains of Ararat, and yeah. the the text shows them embarking out from the ark into the plains of Shinar, which is just to the east of there. So hmm. it's anyway. It so the geography. It, the, Bits. We can we can map out the geography onto what we what we know is there present day. We can understand the geographical features and the landforms that are there. Yeah, that you're right. As you start to think through what must be true if it was a localized flood, we are talking about having to add and multiply explanations, and and that is one of the things that Dr. Ortland is seeking to avoid is multiplying these miracles unnecessarily. And um, and I agree with that. It seems like there's at least like one that he's having to multiply that's not in the text. Uh, okay. One of the other things he said, and this is this is a good for uh, other resources, he said at some point uh, that the, uh, the scientific evidence strongly supports a local flood, and that's just not true. Uh, if, he's, yeah. if, he's, if he says that, it means he's completely ignorant of what the evidence is I would recommend the resource called Is Genesis History. It is a fantastic resource. They just re uh, released a second video, Is Genesis History 2, that is just amazing to look at how the evidence, the, the Hebrew text, the evidence, everything supports what we would see as a global flood. And those who, who say that it supports a local flood, I really think they're just ignorant of things that must be the case for a local flood to be true. Uh, it just, it just doesn't fit. And we can talk about that later or now, whichever, whichever one you want. Uh, no, that, that is, that is something that has always kind of boggled my mind when people make that claim. Well, you know, science is really on the side of, of old earth of, of, of localized flood. It's just not the case. Yeah, I mean, plain and simple. It's just it's not, not true. Once you actually, you actually begin to, to look into the, the grand Canyon and, and, uh, you know, the, the different rock layers and geological features, it just yeah. is not the case. Okay, I, here's something. I, I have to pick your brain on this. And that is a point that Dr. Orland brought up that I, quite frankly, do not have an answer for. And I, and I don't know enough to know whether or not this is a good objection to the global flood view or not. But that is the issue of fossils. Okay, mm -hmm. is it true that you, that, when you look at the animals that exist in certain places today, kangaroos living in Australia, for example, that you have, if you go back into the fossil record, kangaroo fossils are found in Australia, but not found anywhere else. And if that's the case, how did they find their way? Well, I'm not questioning how they found their way to the ark, because if all the continents were together, that wouldn't be an issue. But if after the flood, how, 
it, it, doesn't it seem a little too coincidental that they returned back down to Australia? And so today we have kangaroos living in their ancestral land where all their fossil ancestors live. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, does that stretch credulity or is that exactly what we would expect? So a few things to say to that. One is it is not true that all kangaroo fossils are only in Australia. There, there are kangaroo fossils in Asia, really? uh, even along the path we would have expected them to leave from the Mesopotamian River Valley to Australia. So I don't really? have the link with me on hand, but uh, it is not true. People say that, but it's not true that there are uh, kangaroo fossils are only found in Australia. One of the things that really? uh, I that Dr. Ortland hit on that sounds so persuasive, but it's just a false assumption, is that the the frogs in Central America and the the mm -hmm. uh, alpacas in South America and the kangaroos in Australia and all these disparate species all over the world had to travel from their homes to the ark location. That's a, that's, a, that's a false assumption because no one knows where the animals lived prior to a global flood. There's, right. there's no reason to expect that just because that's where they live today, that's where they've always lived. So it's, right. it's, a, it's a false assumption that, oh yeah, everything had to travel. The penguins had to travel from uh, Antarctica. Well, that's, that's a false assumption because it's very likely that the, the penguins were local. And in the end, the first thing is, this is what God said. He doesn't have a problem. The maker of all things uh, doesn't have a problem bringing over the over 120 years from the time he pronounced destruction to the time of the flood. 120 years passes. God doesn't have a problem bringing animals from wherever they are on earth. So while we, we don't want to uh, multiply miracles that aren't stated in the text, we don't want to multiply assumptions, today's assumptions. That's another one of the things that he said was, we don't want to bring today's assumptions and apply it back to the text itself. Well, that's what exactly what he did when he said mm. that the tree frogs of Central America have always only ever lived in Central America. Well, that's, a, that's a, an assumption that he's making that is a, multiplying more than what the text says. So that would wow. be my, my uh, repartee to when he says that we don't want to multiply uh, miracles. We don't want to multiply assumptions either that are not in the text. Now, just on a side note, and thank you for that explanation, but do you believe that after the flood, the continents were still together in one landmass so that you experienced, or you would have witnessed land bridges and things like that for these animals to traverse? So you could have, you know, an uninterrupted mass of land for the kangaroos to get from the mountains of Ararat down the mountains and then as as presumably as god guided them or or i mean god is behind you know, calvinists so god is sovereign over it but um as they sort of naturally followed the their food supply or what have you they would have been able to walk to australia over the next however many hundreds of years but do you do you believe that do you think that during the flood the continents broke apart and we during the you know flood. okay one of the things that Gavin Orland talk about is not not multiplying miracles. Yeah, but we see in the text there. It does not say specifically the young earth creation model that talks that accounts for how these things work, but it does say the fountains of the great deep burst forth. That's a that's a, a statement that sometimes gets minimized. 
in uh, Genesis chapter seven, the fountains of the great deep. My goodness, that sounds like a lot of the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they just leaked out a little bit of water or that it was a hot spring or something. Fountains, great deep, these are big words. So uh, if you look at the creation models that have been presented, I think there's several that fit well and explain the data exactly like we would expect is that the, the continents slid forth. And today, while continents move, they are recovering from this original movement when the continents broke apart during the flood and moved at high speeds. So the answer to your question is, uh, how did the animals get to Australia or Madagascar or such and such a place? It was because the the uh, water level was probably much lower at the time. Mm. Uh, we th- The uh, way that the flood works, we have hot oceans and lots of cloud cover, lots of volcanic activity that would have probably reflected a lot of the sun's rays back into space. That would have been the perfect situation for the ice age. So the ice age would have held a lot of ice, a lot of water as ice to keep it from filling the ocean basins back in together. So as earth has recovered from this catastrophic event, the uh, Arctic and Antarctic, these ice layers have begun to melt and it's filled in the oceans but if you look at the Mm. uh the maps yeah i see these on different sites that the the land mass between asia and australia is a very low-lying oceans very very shallow oceans so Mm. it would not be a stretch to say well they could have walked easily across from asia to uh, Australia, and as the more and more the ice caps melted and the, the Earth is returning to its original state, the oceans filled in and they became trapped, geographically isolated, which mm. fits very well with the data that we see. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And I'm looking at this uh, this website. I just pulled it up. It's called ChristianAnswers.net. It is. I was searching for kangaroo fossils, and you know they they brought up an interesting example of. Um, rabbits so you know there's this question sort of posed with some snark well did the kangaroos hop all the way to australia from the mountains of ararat and you know i would say well sure i mean i don't see any reason why they couldn't but there's an illustration of or there's an example rather of rabbits apparently australia used to not have any rabbits mm. they just they weren't they weren't native there today rabbits are all over Australia. And well, how did they get there? Did they hop all the way down? No, they were actually brought by some early settlers. And although the settlers only brought a few of them to, well, they multiplied like rabbits and they they filled up uh, the island of Australia. And, you know, there was something similar that happened. Um, my wife and I took our kids to Hawaii last year, about a year ago. It was for my son's Make-A-Wish, which is a whole nother story. But we went down to Hawaii, and there's this island in Hawaii. It's a tiny little island, and uh, it's it's um, it's on the island of Oahu, or it's just off of Oahu. And as you're looking at this island from the right angle, it looks like a rabbit. It looks like a rabbit head sticking out of the water, like the ears kind of back into the water. And they call it Rabbit Island. And they call it Rabbit Island for two reasons. One, because it looks like a rabbit. But also, there was a period of time when that island was completely overrun by rabbits. They lived everywhere. In fact, not only that, but they not only did they live there, but they were destroying the local ecology. Mm. 
because someone had come down there and said, oh, this island looks like a rabbit. Let's put some rabbits on there. And as kind of a tourist thing, they put some rabbits on Rabbit Island and the rabbits multiplied and they ended up taking over the island and changing the, the local ecology, eating up all the, the native vegetation and all that stuff. And eventually someone had to go on there and they killed off all these rabbits and uh, literally wiped them out because they had taken over. So um, I say that just to say, I use those two examples of Australia and Rabbit Island in, um, in Hawaii, just to bring up the fact that humans are migrating during this time as well. And they're bringing mm-hmm. food supply and they're bringing uh, animals. And it's not outrageous to think that they would be bringing local flora and fauna with them, mm-hmm. spreading out so that native populations that we consider to be native today would have been introduced possibly by man at some point. When you realize the fact that God has created this world for man to live in, to spread out and to fill, and especially after the Tower of Babel, you see that more and more, it makes sense that we would bring flora and fauna with us and that eventually these fauna would become landlocked and and they'd become quote unquote native to these these different uh, geographic areas. What do you think about that? I agree that one of my favorite books of all time, John Sabo wrote a book called The Days of Peleg, and it is a historical fiction book about the time period shortly after the flood. And it's the biblical character of Peleg and his his parentage and his lineage down and how the world would have maybe been shortly a few hundred years after the flood. It is a, it a great book, highly explanatory to make things fit very well, but it's told in a novel format that when I ran out of pages, it made me sad because it was so good. <laughs> very, so highly recommend The Days of Peleg, John Sabo. You're talking about it's that's a, a reference to Genesis 10, 25 to Eber were born two sons. The name yes. of the one was Peleg for yes. in his days, the earth was divided and his the brother's was... name was Choctan. Yes. And so the novel okay. historical fiction follows this character Peleg and the way that he, he was a ancient explorer, a cartographer in the, in the novel that again, there's some, there's some Liberty there, but it all, you can take it and fit it over the, the text of scripture and it fits. And uh, anyway, very cool That's book. Very cool. And they talk about it. The, the reason I brought that up is they talk about in their explorations, they had these strange, flightless, black and white birds that they took with them for food because they were docile and they were meat rich and they had a wreck, a shipwreck. And these black and white flightless birds escaped in the South Pole on their, <laughs> so that when they continued their journey, these birds had escaped from their, uh, ship. so it, you're right. There's many times we see mm. evidence of humans bringing animals throughout with them. So very cool. It, very, I, I have always been fascinated by Peleg and what that might mean that the world was divided in his day. Well, go um, to the website, daysofpeleg.com. It's really cool. You'll you'll enjoy seeing a lot of the things they talk about. And then read the novel. I'll send it to you if you want. If you DM me the details, I'll send you the book. You'd enjoy reading it. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. All right. So let's talk really quickly about one of Dr. Ortland's claims. He says that Genesis must be interpreted in its context. And I know that you take issue with his interpretive context and and Although that sounds very good, interpreting Genesis in its context, what does he mean by that? And what is your assessment of how he 
goes about doing that. You know, one of the things that uh, Gio talks about is that he's researched this uh, topic for decades. Well, I have 25 to. years. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, re- I've researched this topic for decades as well. And a, a new thought has arisen in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, led by scholars Michael Heiser, John Walton, this idea that we need to interpret the Bible through the lens of ancient Near Eastern context. What did the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all these people groups that God marked for destruction because of their wickedness, their belief is that we should take their writings, take their beliefs, and read the Bible through that lens, ancient Near Eastern interpretation. So when he says we need to read it in its interpretive context, he's saying, well, how would the Egyptians have regarded the writings of the Bible? How would the Assyrians and the Hittites and all these these recently discovered writings from those cultures, they are the interpretive framework by which we ought to read the Bible. Now, that is a, there's a brand new belief. Uh, Heiser and Walton and maybe a few others have come up with that recently, but it's the, the reformers had no idea of that, that type of thought. The, uh, the early church did not say, hey, we got to see what the Egyptians were writing so that we know how to interpret the Bible. We got to know what the Hittites were writing so we know how to interpret the Bible. Those, that, what, that, what that does is a self-defeating framework that demands that God had to also preserve the writings of ancient Near Eastern cultures just so that we can correctly understand the Bible. Mm. To see how that there, there's some self-defeating nature that, that suddenly now the writings of those cultures are now, we do, God demands that those be preserved as the way he's preserved the scripture. They're, they're now the word of God because that's the authority by which we go and read God's word. It, it's totally against uh, sola scripture and the sufficiency of scripture because I can go and read God's word without having known anything about the Egyptians and know mm. that the, the flood was global, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose, you know, that I'm a sinner. All those things are revealed without having to know what the Babylonians thought about sin or uh, any of those things. Go ahead. Let me let me push back on that uh, a little bit, though, because the um, say you're reading the New Testament and you read about the crucifixion of Jesus, which is not spelled out in gory detail in the Gospels. It says they took him outside and they crucified him. And if you were reading that, you'd go, well, what does that mean? Um, and then you you not only not only do you read that they crucified him, but but the word staurao, I believe is the Greek word, that can also mean uh, just a, a stake. And so Jehovah's Witnesses, they seize on that and they go, uh, Jesus wasn't even killed on a cross. It was a stake nailed into the ground or, you know, uh, mounted into the ground. Well, how are we going to resolve this? Well, we go and we look into history and we find out how did the Romans execute capital punishment on people? Well, whoa, they nailed them to giant crosses. We can go and we can look at the historical evidence for this. So what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm studying the historical context and it's helping me understand what my Lord did for me as he was paying the price for my sins. So um, that doesn't that doesn't change sola scriptura because ultimately scripture is telling me what they did, but I might not understand what scripture means. And I'm, I'm looking outside of scripture for some help with interpretation. Uh, help me understand the difference between that, or maybe you don't like that either, but what's the difference between that and what's going on by looking at the ancient Near East context for the Old Testament? 
So my pushback would be, well, are you looking for a way to interpret God's word by researching about the Romans, which seems to be the case for how the A&E people are, they're looking for a way to interpret it, the ancient Near East. But when you, your example was just uh, detailed information, it's a more sure. of a detail, not, and we yeah. see in Psalm 22 that his hands and his feet were pierced. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, God's word still contains the things that we need to know for salvation, for mm -hmm. building a, a, a world, a, you know, a Christian worldview. Like I said, the, the Bible, the Christianity is the logical work outworkings of what the Bible teaches. Right. So if we have to start bringing in these outside sources, you can still know that Jesus was crucified, that he died a, a horrible death and his hands and feet were pierced. His side was pierced that, uh, you know, none of the bones in his body were broken based solely on the text. We don't need yes. to know. Uh, we don't need to find out how many were killed by the Romans or it, those things are helpful. And I'm not against outside resources. Please learn, study history. But when it comes to an, a matter of authority, when we say, is this global or local? We don't read from the text that it was local. It is global throughout. We yeah. see all of the, all the writers. We see, I, most of the people don't know about Isaiah 54, 9. God makes his promise to the Israelite people that in the, the as the waters covered the earth, uh, it, it, so it's Isaiah. We go to First uh, Peter. We go to Second Peter. Jesus said, uh, "In the same way, the water came and took them all away." That it was it was a totality of uh, a catastrophe that came to the time of Noah's day. Um, you know, regarding one of the things that Gavin Orton, I said he was soft on whether or not more people may have survived the flood. Well, definitely. First uh, Peter chapter three does not permit that. Second Peter chapter three does not permit that. It says only eight survived the flood. So they have, the thing is the, the local flood people, they have answers for some of these. Well, maybe it didn't mean that. Maybe it just means only the eight people from that specific region. And uh, Gavin Ortland mentioned a couple of times that he was in a mocking tone. Well, we, we wouldn't have expected the, the, uh, people from Madagascar or Central America to come all the way to this and that and the other. And uh, yet that is some, that is an outside source. Uh, kind of lost where I was going with that, but uh, are we no, I, I hear what you're saying. do we need to do a talk about part two? Yeah, we, we need to, we need to wrap it up here. Um, but I think to just quickly put a pin on this, You've given me a lot to think about here, especially, you know, the thing that really stands out to me the most here is that fossil question has been eating away at me. Why are there only kangaroo fossils where they happen to live today? And then it just turns out that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, well, and look, that being said, let's say hypothetically that it was the case that kangaroo fossils only existed in modern day Australia. I'm going to tell you this, that would be interesting and mysterious to me, but it still wouldn't change the text of scripture. And I think this is where Sola Scriptura really does have to come in um, and, and play an important role here, because what that would mean to me then, as I would interpret that would be, well, God must have wanted his kangaroos to live in Australia. And so he made sure that they got to the ark. And then after Ararat, he made sure that they got back down to Australia. There's, 
you might say, well, that's multiplying miracles. Maybe, or maybe it's just interpreting what what the state of the, the case is. You know, we have the fossils there. They, they still live there today and they were on the ark. So I've got those three data points that I have to interpret and I can't contradict what scripture says. So if that were the case, that fossils only existed for kangaroos in Australia, well, that just means that they left Australia, went up to wherever Noah was living and then went back down to Australia. So that really wouldn't, you see what I'm saying? As I'm thinking about it, it wouldn't change what the text says. And so if the text is meant to indicate, if the text indicates that it was a global flood, that then it just was a global flood. One more thing, Matt, too, that before we go, uh, what you said was the language that's used, all of these superlatives, all, every, only, when you take those superlatives and you say, then you take a word like Eretz, which can mean land, it mm -hmm. can mean mm -hmm. land, meaning region, like the land of mm -hmm. Israel, Mm -hmm. um, but then, but then you you combine it with all of these superlatives. You start to say, "Well, what land is it talking about there?" It's it, it sure seems to be talking about all the land that there is. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not qualified. Oh, yeah. All the land of Ararat, all the land yeah. of Babylonia, all the land of Eden. It mm -hmm. says all the land, and mm -hmm. so you know, in modern terms, we would say all the earth because mm -hmm. we now understand mm -hmm. that we live on a planet. And so, yeah, like, okay, it can mean region, but in light of the superlatives that are used, it likely doesn't just mean a region. There's too many hoops you have to jump through. Is that, am and, I understanding the argument? And the context. I mean, the, the yeah. context, look at Genesis 1, that the plants were supposed to reproduce on the earth, on the face of the earth, light. Light was supposed to shine, but the, the sun, moon, and stars were supposed to shine on the face of the earth. When we take Gavin Ortland's view and the, the local flood people, the scoffers, that the, the plants weren't supposed to just grow in Mesopotamia. And light from the sun, moon, and stars weren't just supposed to shine only on Mesopotamia. The birds were supposed to fly across the face of the earth. Uh, man was supposed to fill the earth. But when we take this local flood view, man was supposed to just fill Mesopotamia. Um there becomes gospel issues when we make it all the way to Genesis 12 and God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Well, if it's just Mesopotamia, if it's just this local flood area, now we have a gospel issue because only those born in Mesopotamia are eligible for the gospel. Why are we sending out missionaries to somewhere other than Mesopotamia? Because that's that's the elect, man, right there. Mm -hmm. So we've got gospel issues when we start taking these local flood theories and applying them unnaturally to the text. Yeah, I, I called I them scoffers wanna... a couple of times because that comes up in Second Peter. The scoffers, I was just going there, Second Peter the, 3. The scoffers are the ones who say that it wasn't a global flood, that this world was deluged and destroyed. The, the scoffers are the ones who are asking this. So we would want, uh, you know, I use that tongue in cheek. Okay, I don't think Gavin Ortland is a heretic or anything like that. But yeah. why join the scoffers in their denial of the global flood to deny that the world of that time, not, not a geographic boundary, but a time boundary was destroyed at that time? Yeah. Well, we have to leave it there. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. It is always a pleasure. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. But um, how ooh, he mentioned he mentioned the works of Josephus in part mm. of his argument. I have the so right now works you're of Josephus. Of Josephus's book. 
and it shows that the argument he makes is incorrect. So that's a, there's a plug for part two that uh, people want to come back and hear part two that his uh, usage of Josephus to confirm this local flood theory is incorrect. And where can people find more of your work? Apologedi.com. A-P-O-L-O-J-E-D-I.com. That's right. Just like it sounds. Love it. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for coming on and uh, we'll do it again soon. Thank you, Joel. God bless. Well, this has been a production of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching and outreach organization. And if this is the kind of thing that you enjoy and you want to learn more about how to articulate, share, and defend the truth of the Christian message and to lead your family in answering the Bible's questions and the world's questions with biblical confidence, if you do not want to miss out on the ministry that the Lord has specially prepared for you in your life, but you know you need to build your knowledge base and to build your confidence. And you want to do this in the context of a brotherhood that is tight knit, that will hold you accountable, that you could trade ideas with and skills Then you need to, ne- to learn about, you need to learn about the hammer and anvil society. This is our men's discipleship fellowship, and you can learn more about it by going to the think.institute slash society. Check it out. Enrollment is closed right now, but we're going to be opening in about six weeks. And so that'll be the first part of March that that'll be opening back up. Fill out the form at the website. Let me know that you're interested and I will reach out to you. We'll do a consultation call to find out if you're a good fit for the society and if the society is a good fit for you and your goals. But uh, it's a wonderful program and I'd love to have you learn more about that and I'd love to have that conversation with you. So thank you for listening to this episode of Worldview Legacy. My name is Joel Sedekase. I produced it and I especially want to thank my guest, Apollo Jedi. Matt, thank you for coming on and um, thank you to everyone for listening, watching, and we will see you next time.